When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation. As Joe Biden pondered whether to join the 2016 presidential race, his indecision caused deep scheduled challenges at the Whistle Stop headquarters. We had here highly resolved not to do another episode from the 1990s or after for a little while. But we could not withstand the barrage. At each half hour, a new email arrived asking whether Joe Biden was going to jump into the race. Close friends were both certain he was going to join and not certain. By the third week of October, we had reached the I don't know what the hell he's going to do stage. One source who would be in a position to know said that they were going to take credit for having predicted in July that Biden's decision process would drag out all the way until the bitter end. And they were right about that. Ultimately, Biden put us all out of our misery and told us that he was not going to run for president. Of course, this had us thinking about the other great public act of presidential indecision. And we're going to go roll around in that like a warm puppy. But first, a few words arranged in sentences about our sponsor. The Great Courses gives me joy, and we have a new lecture series from them. It's called The Political Tradition, Hobbes to Habermas. It's a look at how theorists over the centuries have tried to figure out the state and how the state should best be governed. Order from any of the eight best-selling courses at the great courses, including the modern political tradition, and get 80% off the original price. Order today. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. That's thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. Our whistle stop today is December 20th, 1991, and we are on the tarmac at the Albany, New York airport. A plane sits waiting to take the governor of New York, Mario Cuomo, to New Hampshire to file papers announcing that he will be a candidate for the Democratic nomination. It is the last day that a candidate can file papers in that important primary state, and there is every expectation that the New York governor will board and touch down in Manchester, finally giving Democrats the candidate they've been pining for since 1984. You might wonder why we can't seem to get out of 1992 here at Whistlestop, and you'd be right to wonder that. We were wondering it ourselves. But if one of our jobs is to accurately convey to you the flavor of the end-of-the-day bar conversations by political insiders who swap stories about previous campaigns, then we would be remiss to not tell you the story of the governor of New York, who came to be known as Hamlet on the Hudson for his long, drawn-out decision about a run for the presidency and then a not-run for the presidency. Our story begins at the 1984 convention, the Democratic convention in San Francisco, as the party gathered for the doomed operation of nominating Fritz Mondale, Walter Mondale, the vice president under Jimmy Carter and former senator from Minnesota. Giving the keynote speech at that convention was the governor of New York. I should pause to interject here. Think of the number of speeches at conventions where we've heard from people who later went on to fame and glory in their own right after speaking 
at the convention of a doomed nominee. We have John Kennedy, who lost his bid to be vice president in 1956, but his concession speech put him on the national stage. We had Reagan in 1976, remember that, from a previous issue of Whistle Stop, who fought tooth and nail with Ford, went to the convention. It was uh, contested, and then Ford won. But when Reagan gave that speech, he became the hero of the conservative movement, the Republican Party, people wanting to nominate Reagan, uh, even though Ford was the nominee. Barack Obama became a national figure in 2004 when he spoke at John Kerry's nominating convention. John Kerry now works for Barack Obama. One of the politicians to really blow his moment at a doomed convention of a nominee, you might be shocked to learn, was Bill Clinton. When he spoke at Michael Dukakis's nominating convention in 1988, Clinton went on forever. Speaking, it's like what they used to say about Senator Humphrey. They used to say what follows after a Senator Hubert Humphrey's dinner speeches? Breakfast. When Clinton was speaking, People started to write out their last will and testaments for fear that they would expire in the aisles as he continued on and on and on. Here's a news clip from that period as Clinton just continued to speak. You're listening to the lengthy nomination speech of Governor William Clinton of Arkansas, placing a nomination in the name of his friend, Michael S. Dukakis, governor of Massachusetts. Uh, Bill Clinton now is seriously in oversight. He's only about halfway through his prepared text, and he should have been done about five minutes ago because it was scheduled to go only 20. We say all this, we're going to be here. We'll have to be here until this whole proceeding is over, but at the same time, they, they have to be aware of the uh, television audience and whether or not it is staying with this lengthy speech, which is a recitation of a lot of the stuff that we've heard in the past couple of days. As these delegates continue to interrupt the speech from time to time with some demonstrations. Chris, where are you? I'm uh, in the New Jersey delegation, and I can tell you that this uh, place is just ready to explode, and I think that they're long past the period, Tom, of listening to Governor Bill Clinton. This had been very carefully planned, the idea that Bill Clinton would give a speech, a short speech of about 15 minutes, listing Michael Dukakis's qualifications, talking about what kind of a governor he had been and why he'd be a good president, obviously citing the Massachusetts miracle, but it has gone on so long that he has completely lost this crowd. The people are ready for the demonstration, long past ready, and it seems that Bill Clinton has overstayed his welcome here in this hall. Clinton's speech went on so long that the audience booed him, and uh, he plowed right on while they were booing and talking and doing everything but listening to him. And then finally, though, listen to when they erupt in applause, what he says that causes them to cheer loudly. Michael Dukakis will never, never, never forget it. In closing... you to remember. So the best line of Clinton's that night was to say in closing. In 1984, though, the man who would turn the losing night to his advantage was Mario Cuomo. He delivered a speech as a counterpoint to Reagan's message that it was morning in America. It was July 16th, 1984. The Cuomo was giving the speech at Walter Mondale's nominating convention at all was mildly surprising. Ted Kennedy should have done it. Not only was Kennedy a star and a leading light in the party, but Mondale needed to buy off his support. He needed to give him the primetime spot to get Kennedy to come and be fully behind Mondale. You remember, of course, all the hell Kennedy caused Carter in 1980, and Mondale was the number two on that ticket. So things weren't all copacetic in the Mondale-Kennedy world. And so there needed to be some uh, 
patching. But you'll also remember that when Kennedy gave the the dream will never die speech in the 1980 convention, it stole the show from Carter. So Mondale didn't want that to happen again. So Mondale picked Cuomo. And the hope was that if Cuomo gave a big speech and maybe a very good speech, it would lift the nominee. But since Cuomo had just been elected governor of New York in 1982, no one would say, why not Mario as the as the nominee? Cuomo wasn't sure he wanted to risk it. If he gave a dud speech, then he'd weigh down his career, and that would be that. His aide, Tim Russert, yes, that Tim Russert from Meet the Press, thought it was a great idea, though, and he pushed Cuomo to give the speech. After a strange kabuki in which Kennedy phoned Cuomo to feel him out about giving the speech or not giving the speech, and then at the end of the call to push Cuomo to give the speech, Mondale called, made the final offer, Cuomo said yes, and then began his long, tortured process of writing the actual speech. In one writing session, he spent seven, uh, between seven and eight hours writing, trying to put together the memorable speech. Cuomo wrote in his diary, I worked so much on that speech in the last week that now the whole thing is predictable and dull to me. I can no longer judge its potential effectiveness. It's almost certain, however, that I won't be able to reach the expectations that have been created. Over and over, I hear and read about what a dynamic speech is expected. I'm afraid I'm going to pay a big price for the inaugural success. Nevertheless, the uncertainty about how it will go, the curiosity and the challenge create a special kind of excitement that's not altogether unappealing. Russert had provided Cuomo with videos of previous keynote speeches. John Glenn was the one to avoid, 1976. Glenn, the former astronaut, had given a fine speech, but it was just a fine speech. In the cutaways on the cameras, people in the audience were nodding off. The staff had decided, Cuomo's staff had decided, that he had to grab the audience in the first two minutes. And so here are those first two minutes. Ten days ago, President Reagan admitted that although some people in this country seem to be doing well nowadays, others were unhappy, even worried about themselves, their families, and their futures. The president said that he didn't understand that fear He said, why, this country is a shining city on a hill. And the president is right. In many ways, we are a shining city on a hill. But the hard truth is that not everyone is sharing in this city's splendor and glory. A shining city is perhaps all the president sees from the portico of the White House and the veranda of his ranch where everyone seems to be doing well. But there's another city. There's another part to the shining city, the part where some people can't pay their mortgages and most young people can't afford one, where students can't afford the education they need and middle-class parents watch the dreams they hold for their children evaporate. In this part of the city, there are more poor than ever more families in trouble, more and more people who need help but can't find it. Even worse, there are elderly people who tremble in the basements of the houses there. And there are people who sleep in the city streets, in the gutter, where the glitter doesn't show. There are ghettos where thousands of young people without a job or an education give their lives away to drug dealers every day. There is despair, Mr. President, in the faces that you don't see, in the places that you don't visit, in your shining city. 
In fact, Mr. President, this is a nation. Mr. President, you ought to know that this nation is more a tale of two cities than it is just a shining city on a hill. Cuomo nailed it. We've stopped the address there almost exactly at the two-minute mark. Cuomo continued on using those great linguistic flapjacks for which he was known, lines like, we will do that not so much with speeches that sound good as with speeches that are good and sound. There was a lot of that going on in the speech. And it wasn't just the words that he was saying. It was that Cuomo was speaking powerfully about democratic values at a time when the party felt like they were defeated and beaten. He was talking about ideas that Democrats had been in love with since 1932. And the central notion at the concluding portion of his speech that, and you heard this again in Barack Obama when he used to talk about being our brother's keeper. This was the centerpiece of Obama's 2008 campaign, that we are each other's brother's keeper, and that that is what calls us to public service. It's what calls us into elections. And it's the fight for which Democrats can be proud and really put their shoulder into, that when you see a poor person living in Appalachia, that that is everybody's concern, that that is everybody's job to fix and make that better, and that the collective way in which you do that, the collective action you take to help people who are the least among us, that that is done through government, and that is the reason Democrats want to be in the game. It was, a, it was rousing in a way that even from someone like Bernie Sanders, who has got uh, a lot of emotion and power in the grassroots of the Democratic Party, doesn't really talk about that that much. But at the end of Cuomo's speech, he talks about the pull that, that pulls Democrats when they see people who are struggling. Of course, the juxtaposition was that Reagan felt no such pull. Reagan's argument, according to Cuomo, is that basically you're just on your own. It was the first nominating speech to be carried around the world by CNN. Cuomo had what he used to say was a face like a tired frog, but the face was made famous by the speech. It was so good that it wound up undermining Mondale, just as we said wasn't going to happen. Here comes Scotty Reston from The New York Times writing at the time. Never since Adlai Stevenson's keynote address at the Democratic Convention in Chicago in 1952 have the delegates reacted to an opening speech with such enthusiasm. So much so that in their present doubts about Walter Mondale, it would not be beyond the realm of possibility that in a blocked or delayed vote for Mr. Mondale, Governor Cuomo could be drafted and nominated. So that's slightly different than what happened with Reagan in 76, where Reagan gives the the great speech and people in the actual audience, conservatives, are pulled towards Reagan. This is basically Scotty Reston just riffing, <laughs> just basically coming up with a fantasy. But the speech was that moving. It's ranked by a lot of people up there, basically with FDR's second inaugural, Kennedy's inaugural address. I mean, so in other words, it's not just a great convention speech. It's ranked by a lot of people in the great speeches, political speeches of all time, you know, with William Jennings Bryan's Cross of Gold speech, which I throw in there to pretend like I really know a lot about that speech. I mean, we all know about it, but I didn't hear it myself. Here's how Cuomo described the speech and why it worked. It was not a great speech. It was really was not a great speech. It was, a, it, was a, it was a good speech. It was not a great speech. It was not particularly well delivered, even by my own standards. What happened was the moment was exactly right. And the message and the moment came together perfectly, which will happen. 
There are times, you know, the young man is with the young woman and he's courting her. And if you lean across the table at the wrong moment and you put your hand on hers, it's cold flesh on colder flesh and that's it. If the moment is right, you know, if the context is right, if the disposition is right, it's warm, it's sweet, it's engaging, it's lovely, it's thrilling even. They were desperate to hear something that could make them feel good about themselves, about the party, about the country, and about possibility. They weren't waiting for super intelligent words or brilliant images or clever uh, language. Uh, they wanted to feel good about themselves and about the country. And whatever pictures I chose worked for them. They don't have to be great pictures to work. They just happened to work. The message and the moment came together, and they liked it very, very much. That's different than having made a really great speech. This is not a really great speech. What Cuomo hits on is a crucial point about the words of speech, the power of the argument, the structure, what makes a speech read well, and what makes a speech become a public moment. When you think about candidates like Barack Obama and Bernie Sanders, they are the kinds of candidates who who have that mix. I mean, I think you could argue Sanders doesn't give great, beautifully written speeches, but he has lots and lots of vibrating energy so that a few words of any quality will echo and, and bounce all over the place with that kind of vibrating energy. Obama had both the energy and also had the gift. He used to talk about speaking like a jazz improvisational event where he as the speaker feeds and and reacts to the mood of the crowd and plays and works with that mood of the crowd. They used to say the same thing about Cuomo, that he would surf over the, the applause in a way that suggests an improvisational command of the moment. And so a great speech... Uh, can not look that great on paper, not even sound that great in retrospect. It, it is when it is given in the moment that makes it. And here is how George Stephanopoulos, then a young Democratic aide, described the power of the speech on him. I thought it was the best possible story, the chronicle of a successful candidate who thought like a moral philosopher, talking about Cuomo here. Watching his 1984 Democratic Convention keynote, here was a politician who could use words like love and compassion without seeming like a wimp who talked about the mosaic of America and called on the country to replace Reagan's social Darwinism with the idea of family. Cuomo was saying everything I believed in a way that made people want to fight. That idea of family is what I was babbling about earlier, this idea that we are our brother's keeper. Later in life, Cuomo would say that giving a speech so well-received had an eclipsing characteristic because you're known as a speech giver that means you can't be a person who actually accomplishes things. And we see this with President Obama. One of the knocks against him from within his party, but also particularly from Republicans, is that he's such a speechmaker, that's all he does. It's just words. And that's a double-pronged attack. One is that the power of words don't really do anything useful, just fool us and get us whipped up and, and it's all ephemeral. And the second is that it hides a weakness for getting anything done. Now, of course, if you think of Reagan as a great communicator, no one on the conservative side would say his ability to speak undermined his ability to get things done. But when, you know, when it's a weapon about the other party, this is how it works. And Cuomo believed that giving such a good speech in 1984 was a burden. It tilted him too much as a speaker and not a doer. Well, <laughs> that's a 
good problem to have, as they say. In 1986, Cuomo wins his gubernatorial campaign by a larger margin than any other previous governor of New York, and that immediately put him in the mix as a presidential candidate. And this is 86 we're talking about here, so two years after he's given that convention speech. We should note, of course, that Mondale went on to lose. But nevertheless, being the New York governor is like being the California governor. It puts you in the running almost immediately for the presidency. Four previous New York governors, Martin Van Buren, Grover Cleveland, Teddy Roosevelt, and FDR, have gone to the White House. And five others, Charles Evan Hughes, Al Smith, Thomas Dewey, Avril Harriman, Nelson Rockefeller, have also made attempts, strong attempts, to try to be president. So it's already a paved path. Um, And then you have Cuomo winning by this big margin. He's given this big speech. So this was in an age where political experience actually meant something. Voters seemed to want it from their candidates. And so uh, it was a really big deal to be voted by that wide a margin into a political job. So in 1988, it was considered by smart people that Cuomo would run for the presidency because he made people believe, as Stephanopoulos mentioned in that quote. But before the machine of anticipation could really get wound up, Cuomo announced on February 19th, 1987, that he would not run. And that was a bit of a shocker. People didn't say no when everybody was yelling and baying for you to run. And when we think of it today, think of Barack Obama. Um, Jumped at his chance before he might have been ready by the old standards. You think of Marco Rubio, same thing, jumping at his chance when other people might say, hey, you might want a little more experience. The knock against Chris Christie is he waited too long, uh, didn't jump too early. So In today's political world, there would be all kinds of arguments for Cuomo to have run in 1988 instead of Dukakis and grab his moment. This is a preview, of course, of what happens in 1991. But what's interesting about it, I think, is about Cuomo. Robert McElvain, who wrote a book on Cuomo that came out before the whole 1991 episode, runs through a number of reasons that Cuomo didn't decide to run in 1988. And it's interesting as a kind of psychological investigation of a person who was a key figure, was the Democratic white knight, far more than Joe Biden ever was in this race, was the Democratic white knight for a long time, and why he didn't run. And so the the enumerated reasons in 1988 are that there might have been some skeletons at his closet, although those were always rumor more than a sort of obvious thing. And the other ones, though, are much more interesting. One is that as a Catholic, Cuomo worried about the sin of pride, that basically all of this adulation, all of this baying for him to be running for the nomination made him uncomfortable. He preferred much more to be the underdog. He preferred to think of himself, have self-confidence, but not the kind of crazy, uh, gilded adulation of people when he wasn't sure that he'd quite earned it. And he worried then, connected to that, that he might be doing it for the wrong reasons. Now, this is all psychobabble, but it, it's, it shows you two things. One, people were scratching for reasons why this guy didn't go for the big brass ring. But it also gives you some sense of the texture of Cuomo. Here's how his friend Jack Newfield put it in McIlvain's book. Mario doesn't have a messianic complex. He can't believe he's indispensable. And in fact, Cuomo told uh, McIlvain, it's very hard for me to say... I should be president. I'm better than all these people. I don't feel it and I don't believe it. Some people do believe it. They come to me and say, I think you're better than this guy. I say, okay, but I don't. I don't know whether it's a psychic barrier of some kind. I don't know. Maybe it's the first definition of sin I ever read. Sin not being sex, but pride. 
Sin in the garden wasn't really sex. It was pride. That's what eating the apple was. So this is Cuomo talking about this after not deciding to run in 1988. We don't know what the ultimate answer is, but it gives you some window into the greatest act of public pondering that we've had in the modern age. So that was the race of 1988. Now 1991 comes along. The 1992 presidential cycle has started, and it starts with Cuomo speculation. And the pressure was really on because the Democrats had been losing. Dukakis had lost. Mondale had lost. Carter had lost. They'd won only one victory going back to 1964, and they looked ready to nominate another obscure, vulnerable loser in Bill Clinton. The party needed a white knight. And this is where, again, as I mentioned before, this is the big difference between Cuomo and Biden. There was a yearning for Cuomo. There was a thirst for Cuomo because he excited those old-time values, but also they wanted him to be president. And it was a, they were beating down the door maybe going a little too far. But there was really no such yearning for Biden in this current presidential campaign. Now, it was also true that Bush was strong in 1991, uh, at this point in the fall of 1991, which which meant that a lot of Democrats didn't want to run. And we come now again, because it's too fun to ignore, the famous Saturday Night Live sketch. Campaign 92, the race to avoid being the guy who loses to Bush. And here we'll hear how Cuomo is being characterized in the modern comedic milieu. You can show me polls that have me losing to Bush by seven points, and I can show you polls that have me losing to Bush by 40 points. That's not the issue. The issue is my record. After eight years of my mismanagement as governor, the economy of New York State is in a shambles. Now, I don't think anyone here can point to a record like that. Tonight, we've heard a lot about images of perception, about what poll shows what candidate losing by the least to whom at any given time. Now, I could stand here and talk about the inaccuracy of polling or the subjective nature of the process, but that's not the real issue here. The real issue is very simple. I have mob ties. So this gives you some sense of how uh, formidable George Bush was in the fall of 1991. Cuomo, at that period, was famously saying he had no plans and had no plans to make plans. But then, in about the beginning of October, he started making a plan, or at least showing that he was willing to accept a plan if one were handed to him. And going back to that psychobabble about what was inside Cuomo's head, if he felt it was prideful to seek the presidency, to think himself worthy of the presidency, there was a way in which those who knew him felt he could be tricked into thinking he was ready for the presidency, which is to say if people drafted him, if the plans were drawn up, if there was a sense that enough people kind of wanted to give it to him, he might be convinced to run. And so at October 20th, he said, what does my heart tell me? It tells me, go out and and tell them, Mario, take your best shot, whether you win, lose or draw. Your head tells you, he went on to say, how do you do that and do the right thing as governor? I'm working on my head at the moment, he said. So he's having a public pondering in some of the same ways that Biden was. While the candidate was pondering, the machine was moving. A shipment of slick Cuomo brochures materialized in New Hampshire during the fall. Friends of the governor were working the phones, urging prominent Democrats to hang loose, not support these other seven dwarves who were running, but wait for Cuomo to enter the race. Cuomo staffers were preparing profiles of each state. Campaign teams of fundraisers and lawyers 
were being built. Strategists were holding off offers to other campaigns. James Carville said he would have considered working for Cuomo. George Stephanopoulos thought about the same thing. The fax machines were humming with papers curling out with fresh resumes from young, eager political hacks. The polls all showed Cuomo was far ahead of all the other Democrats. One of the signs that he was thinking about running, in fact, was that he was trying to tamp down the expectations created by those polls, because if he was to get in, he was worried his poll numbers would drop. So it was a real sign that he was thinking about running, that he and his political staff was saying, oh, don't believe these polls. If we get in, we'll be so far behind the others in terms of preparation. The other candidates were going bonkers. When Clinton's ragtag team gathered in, in Little Rock early in November to talk strategy, it was basically like having two parallel conversations in the same room. Some game plans factored Cuomo into the race. Others counted him out. And according to the Newsweek account of that 1992 race, the conferees had to keep interrupting each other to find out which set of assumptions was on the table as they were talking through strategy. Was this assumption that Cuomo was in or Cuomo was out? Here's what James Carville wrote in his book about uh, the 1992 race. Carville wrote, I have a nephew named Jojo. He had cancer, but he's doing fine now. But before he beat it, you never had a conversation where you didn't talk about Jojo. There was no such thing as sitting around the table telling family stories. You might do it for three or four minutes, and then you talked about Jojo. How is Jojo? What do you hear about Jojo? What's the doctor say about Jojo? Mario Cuomo was the Jojo factor. The specificity of rumors was staggering, Carville wrote. Somebody called once and said, we got the word. It's definite. He's making the announcement at 10 o'clock on Monday. He has the plane on the runway. This specificity thing is hysterical. During the Biden story, there were lots of reports from people saying it was certain that he was going to run. They had three sources telling them this, and it was just a matter of his making it official. When Biden talked about his decision-making process on 60 Minutes after he had said no, he told Nora O'Donnell that part of what was pushing him to make him the call earlier, even though he never did make that call earlier publicly, was all the incorrect press reports from people saying that they talked to people really close to him and he'd made the decision or he hadn't made the decision. And he was sitting there saying, I don't even know what I think. So how do all these people reporting with such extraordinary specificity uh, know what's going on? And he just wanted to be done with all of the, the public fake certainty. Stephanopoulos writes about this kind of constipation that was created by waiting around for Cuomo. The Northeast Corridor was buzzing with a new rumor. Cuomo was getting in. At a fundraising breakfast in Manhattan, he had cracked the door open to a candidacy. The news hit me like a kick in the stomach. Why now? Where were you a month ago? The longer he took to make up his labyrinthine mind, the more frustrated we got. He had frozen the race. Cuomo writes an important thing here about the press. Reporters were dying for Cuomo to jump in, he said. It seemed as if every time the governor of New York scratched his nose, he received more fawning coverage than we could get with a series of substantive speeches. Pause. You can imagine the Clinton campaign saying this identical thing at the moment. While she's giving all these substantive policy speeches, the Biden story is being covered like crazy. Back to Stephanopoulos. What could be better than an enigmatic and eloquent intellectual who quoted St. Francis of Assisi and didn't dirty his hands by actually entering the race? Few figures are more appealing than the reluctant statesman, untroubled by ambition, but willing to accept the burden of office for the good of all. Cuomo sapiens is what the Washington Post called him, the thinking man's non-candidate. More from James Carville on this point. Carville writes, The thing about reporters to remember is that they like news. Bankers like money. Actors like fame. Reporters like news. In the late fall of 1991, they wanted Cuomo in the race because he would have been interesting to cover. It was a good story. And the truth of the matter is, we were watching him too. According to the Newsweek account of the race, this is what Hillary thought about all of this. 
Hillary put her foot down and ultimately prevailed. If Cuomo got in, she thought Bill should run as the un-Cuomo. Just draw a line in the dirt and say, these are my values, those are his. Cuomos were old, Bills were new. It would be the dialectic they had always wanted, a generational struggle for the hearts and minds of the party. So this is interesting, of course, because we now have Hillary Clinton involved in a debate about the direction of the party. And she is drawing a very different line than the line she wanted her husband to draw if Cuomo got in the race. He was going to run as a new Democrat, not an old-fashioned liberal. He would later say that the era of big government is over. That is not the campaign that Hillary Clinton is running. And yet she could be, were she interested in drawing the kind of distinction with Sanders that she wanted Bill Clinton to draw with Cuomo. While everybody was waiting for Cuomo to make up his mind, there were lots of little side skirmishes. In New York Magazine, Joe Klein got Cuomo to criticize Clinton's plans on welfare and national service. And so the Clinton campaign thought, well, we're not going to let him get all the news coverage and take pot shots at our our program. So Stephanopoulos got on the phone with E.J. Dionne at The Post and got him to attack Cuomo. The reason the campaign wanted to engage Cuomo is because they thought he was getting a free ride and he was doing this whole Hamlet act on purpose because it was a way to get press coverage. Everybody was covering him dancing around at the edge of the pool and he didn't have to actually get in, but he dominated the political news and and that did two things. It brought more glory to him. Oh my gosh, he's so great. Everybody wants him to get in. And it, it uh, obscured what the other candidates, in this case, Bill Clinton, wanted. By the middle of December... The Associated Press wrote it this way. The signals Cuomo is sending are unmistakable. Cuomo is running. The only question now is whether New York's budget mess will force him to change his mind. One columnist wrote about it as if Cuomo's getting in was a settled fact. On December 18th, one columnist wrote, Now that Mario Cuomo is about to give the campaign its final critical definition. Of course, that columnist also wrote, In the unlikely but plausible event, George Bush is defeated. So in December of 1991... It was unlikely that Bush would be defeated, but it had become a little bit plausible. Of course, Bush goes on to lose, but it gives you some sense of of just a year, less than a year before the actual election would take place. It seemed unlikely that Bush would be defeated even if Cuomo were to get in the race. At this point, right before the big moment of decision for Cuomo, he only trailed Bush 48-42, which was an extraordinary closing, not extraordinary, but a a 12-point closing. Two months earlier, Cuomo had been down 18 points to Bush. So the improvement in the polls obviously added to the Cuomo allure. Cuomo had said that if he couldn't resolve the budget fight with Republicans in New York, that he would not abandon his position as governor. But then at one point, he started to say, well, if the budget wasn't resolved but seemed on its way to being resolved, and if it appeared Republicans were holding up the budget simply to mess around with his presidential run, he would jump in. So the the Republican budget was a fig leaf or an out or escape or a stalking horse or something like that, but it was a thin one. And here we get back to the psychobabble. We've had the sort of positive spin on the Cuomo psychobabble. He was so racked with, with fears of pride that he didn't want to join a race that would make him, make him feel uneasy about a self-aggrandizement. Here, here's another less flattering view of his indecision in a piece by the Associated Press. Longtime Cuomo advisors in Albany believe that Mr. Cuomo has never had a deep desire to run for president and does not now, but is unable to resist the ego gratification of a presidential draft. He revived speculation about his ambitions and then took a self-indulgent political joyride. 
Now these advisors speculate Mr. Cuomo needs an excuse not to run and has found it in the state budget. Ouch. So the question about Mario Cuomo, just briefly, is was he truly racked in the, as, as that favorable portrait of him suggested by this sense of personal groundedness? Or was it precisely the opposite, that he played footsie just to get the adulation but didn't have the, the guts to make the final leap? Never mind. Everybody thought he was running uh, at the time. Anyway, the state assembly speaker, who was a longtime Cuomo friend, told his Democratic colleagues that Cuomo would announce on Thursday uh, or perhaps Friday, but that it was a done deal. And so Friday came and a plane had been chartered. That plane was sitting on the tarmac in Albany for the sprint to New Hampshire, where a microphone had been ordered up for Cuomo's use when he got there to fill out the campaign documentation to be an official candidate. So the long wait was over, or so everyone thought. But after all of the waiting for Godot, Godot did not go. With the CNN cameras showing live pictures of the idling plane, Cuomo announced that he was not running. He couldn't leave the budget fight. Here's how George Stephanopoulos remembered it. That entire week felt like one long election day, waiting for results you could no longer pretend to control. Work was impossible. All we cared about was information about Cuomo's intentions. We scrutinized every statement, rumor, and hint for possible clues. Cuomo chartered a plane for a flight to Manchester. Must be getting in. But Republicans in his state Senate were holding firm in budget talks. Maybe he can't get in. We seem to have the most to lose if Cuomo entered the race, which is why we were desperately trying to convince ourselves that we wanted him in, that his entry, which was probably inevitable, would actually work to our advantage. The only way to be a heavyweight is to beat a heavyweight. You remember briefly that notion, heavyweight beating a heavyweight, was what Hamilton Jordan said made a Kennedy candidacy so appealing for Carter, that they didn't need to worry about getting Ted Kennedy out of the race in 1980. They wanted him to run so that when Carter bashed and troubled in the polls, beat Kennedy, he would look like a giant killer and therefore the glory would redound to him. That was the same thing that the Clinton folks had convinced themselves if Cuomo got into the race. This psychological thing is a crucial point about campaigns. When a campaign spins that something obviously bad for the campaign is good, you know, uh, senator was caught with, you know, a young co-ed, not his wife. It shows that he's active, reaching out to young people. You know, these incredibly uh, impossible claims the spinners make. It's not because or it's not solely because they're, you know, cold hearted liars uh, paid money to spin the press. It's because they're human. They have to convince themselves of this spin to get themselves through the day. So the Clinton folks had convinced themselves Cuomo was a good opponent because they had to drag themselves out of bed every morning. And because they, you know, they want their enterprise to be successful. So they tell themselves these sweet, sweet lies and then live in this sort of foggy, half-believing, not-believing realm until one of two things happen. They get some data that allows them to sink in to the rationalization, or they can come up with some other theory that's better and that they believe more. But what Stephanopoulos was talking about, about only a heavyweight can beat a heavyweight, is just the kind of self-soothing that goes on in campaigns that then gets minted into spin that then gets fed to the press. Bill Clinton was due in Nashville on the 20th of December to see if a doctor could fix his chronically disappearing voice. He still has this problem now, if you've heard him on the campaign trail. His plane had just touched down when Stephanopoulos called from Little Rock to go over the draft of a statement that was welcoming Cuomo into the fight. But when Clinton landed his plane, 
he learned that Cuomo had not taken off in his plane and then he wouldn't have to worry about him joining the race. Here's how Newsweek wrote about Hillary Clinton's reaction in the hopped up and melodramatic style only news magazines of the last century could write them. He's not running, she exclaimed. No, Hillary, he's not running, Mintz said. Oh, my God, she said. She could feel the landscape of her life changing, possibly forever. The campaign wasn't a rehearsal anymore or a traveling seminar on the issues. Now it was real, and Bill was the front runner. It was more than a little scary. And so as she looked out over the vast landscape of the textured American experience, the daughter of a determined mother and a calloused hand father took stock of her place in the universe at a turning point more portentous perhaps than since the spinning ball of blue had first cooled from the explosion that scattered atoms and neutrons like jacks on the hot pavement below a big city tenement in a city too honest for your lousy two-bit schemes but too afraid to care. (laughs) Sorry, I made up that last bit. Where was I? Sorry. (laughs) Okay, so uh, the Newsweek accounts uh, ends. It was more than a little scary. So here's the way uh, Tom Brokaw announced the news that night on NBC. Mario Cuomo's on-again, off-again presidential campaign tonight is off, period, for 1992 at least, mostly for sure. Here's how John King, now of CNN, but formerly an ace reporter for the Associated Press, wrote it. The Democratic presidential field lost its frontrunner Friday before it even had one. It wasn't the end of things, though, when Cuomo decided not to run, because it's never the end of things. Speculation about Joe Biden that he might get back into the race after he said he wasn't going to join the race started almost immediately with his announcement that he wasn't going to join the race. When Clinton, the frontrunner, had his trouble in New Hampshire that we've discussed in a previous whistle stop, a draft Cuomo office appeared in Concord, New Hampshire. The party was desperately seeking deliverance from its next defeat, the sixth defeat in the last seven tries at the presidency. And there was also a personal reason for Cuomo maybe to flirt again after that December 20th, 1991 decision. On the tape recordings between Bill Clinton and Jennifer Flowers, Clinton had made some unflattering comments about Cuomo. Flowers on the tape says she doesn't care for Cuomo's demeanor. Clinton responds, boy, he's so aggressive. Flowers says she wouldn't be surprised if Cuomo didn't have some mafioso major connections. Well, he acts like one, Clinton says. Clinton then had to apologize in which he gave, and we're again familiar with this, apology, non-apology. Clinton said, if the remarks on the tape left anyone with the impression that I was disrespectful to either Governor Cuomo or Italian-Americans, then I deeply regretted. At the time the conversation was held, there had been some political give and take between myself and the governor, and I meant simply to imply that Governor Cuomo is a tough, worthy competitor. (laughs) Cuomo, of course, did not buy this. What do you mean if, Cuomo said, referring to the governor's statement, if you are not capable of understanding what was said, then don't try apologizing. This is part of an ugly syndrome that strikes Italian-Americans, Jewish people, blacks, women, all the ethnic groups, Cuomo said. He later, though, urged putting the issue behind him and talking about the issues. Clinton was then later pressed about his lame apology to Cuomo and He did what we have come to expect from him, and it's a technique that his wife also has employed. Clinton said, what I wonder is, with all the American people we got that are unemployed, with all the people who can't get any health care, with all the problems we have in this country, the first three questions from this press conference would be about something that doesn't have a thing to do with the future of this country. The first three questions, of course, being about Mario Cuomo in much the same way so many questions have been about Hillary Clinton's emails, the pivot being from the frivolous to the thing voters really care about which was, as we discussed in our I Feel Your Pain 
episode, a, a technique that Clinton honed in New Hampshire and would later put to good use in that second town hall presidential debate in 1992. Finally, Mario Cuomo would really put an end to speculation about his chances when he gave the nominating speech at the 1992 convention. So his political life had come full circle from that speech eight years earlier in 1984. Now in 1992, he was really taking his last turn on the presidential stage. And again, it was as a secondary player. But he could still offer those lines at Bill Clinton's nominating convention that thrilled the crowds. Surrender that democratic principle and we might just as well tear the donkeys from our lapels, pin elephants on instead, and retreat to elegant estates behind ivy-covered walls where when they detect the callus on their palms, they conclude it's time to put down their polo mallet. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistle Stop. Send us an email at whistlestop at slate.com or leave us a review on the iTunes store at the Whistle Stop section. It helps us spread the word and it gives your host something to do during those long writer's block problems. Thanks to our sponsor this week, The Great Courses Remember the Modern Political Tradition. That's Hobbes to Habermas. That's Jürgen Habermas. Order from eight of their best-selling courses, including the modern political tradition, at up to 80% off of the original price. Order today. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. That's thegreatcourses, all one word, dot com slash whistlestop. Our producer today is Tony Field. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Whistlestop is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Our Whistlestop Crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who is always decisive and once played Hamlet in Mrs. Robertson's 10th grade drama class and received very strong notices. I'm John Dickerson. I'll be back in two weeks. Thanks so much for listening. Listening.